0: Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker.
1: Uh, I'm going to give you a joke in Swedish. Två svenska killar skulle dansa etiopisk dans. Det ser ganska roligt ut. Tack för mig. Hej.
0: Hopefully that was family friendly. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
0: You just got a joke from the Swedish-raised Marcus Samuelson, star chef at the Red Rooster in Harlem. That'll help break the ice if you are at a dinner party in Sweden. And lucky you if you are. Yeah. Later, we will speak with Marcus <laughs> about his new book, Yes Chef.
2: Also coming up, Anna Gunn from TV's Breaking Bad is here. Novelist Chris Cleave talks about his new cycling-themed book, just in time for the Tour de France, and Cheryl Strayed, best-selling author of the book *Wild*, is here to answer your etiquette questions.
0: All coming up after this news. Ah, but dear podcasters, we honor you by skipping what would be the outdated NPR news and going straight to more show. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
2: Later, Anna Gunn from AMC's hit show Breaking Bad tells us about dysfunctional relationships. Like
0: she needs to tell us about that. You know? There you go again, always interrupting. You're always interrupting.
2: Also coming up, the story behind Andy Warhol's Campbell's Soup Art.
0: But first, as at any dinner party, we start
2: with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Yahoo has confirmed theft of 400,000 user names and passwords. The most powerful leaders at Penn State repeatedly concealed
3: facts. The National League trounced the American League in baseball's all-star game.
2: Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Sadie Stein. She's the deputy editor of the Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
4: Well, at the Review, we've been talking a lot about Ernest Hemingway this week. Okay. Okay. Among other things, isn't that what you always
2: do at the review?
4: Minute to minute, yeah, it's just <laughs> what's new with Hemingway. But this week there was something new, a couple of new things. The Michigan Hemingway Society has organized a formal tour in which they have marked eleven places of Hemingway interest across the state.
0: What is his connection to Michigan? I think of him as like Paris, or but
4: he spent some time there every year until his marriage.
2: Really, with his first
4: marriage, first of four. Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> in fact, I think yes. he actually married Hadley in Michigan.
2: But this is like pre-cool Hemingway, though, right? This
4: is early Hemingway. But um, <laughs> if hey, if you're a real fan, there is no lesser part of his life. This is formative.
0: True. But I, I mean, I will say, though, that Michigan already kind of has a claim to literary giants. You had Arthur Miller went to uh, the University of Michigan and, uh, and Iggy Pop.
4: So you're saying you didn't even need Hemingway there.
0: Why claim Hemingway? Why take him away from Paris?
4: Paris is doing okay. (laughs) I think they can afford to share a little pop of love.
0: That's true. All right, but you said that there were uh, two pieces of Hemingway news this week?
4: Well, the other is there's a new edition of A Farewell to Arms being released in which they include 37 of Hemingway's alternate endings.
2: Wow. So like four adjectives, but 37 different endings. <laughs> anyway.
0: Sadie Stein, thanks so much for the small talk.
4: As ever, thank you for having me.
0: And now, time for cocktails. Uh, once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with
2: it. It's our tart, but not bitter,
0: history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1962, Andy Warhol's first paintings of Campbell's soup cans
2: were unveiled. The folks at your dinner party will undoubtedly know about them. Michelle Phillippe's here with some details they might not know.
5: Andy Warhol painted soup cans because he really liked soup. Also because he wanted to examine the appeal of mass-produced commercial art to the modern audience. But he chose soup as his subject because he liked it. According to him, quote, I used to drink it. I used to have the same lunch every day for 20 years. Some say he often paired the soup with Coca-Cola. Warhol debuted the soup can paintings in his first one-man gallery show, not in his home base of New York City, but in LA. He got a checklist of every kind of soup Campbell's made and churned out a silkscreen portrait of each can. Then he displayed them on a little ledge Kind of like products on a grocery shelf. The art world reacted with curiosity and amusement. A nearby L.A. gallery put a stack of actual Campbell soup cans on the window with a sign that read, Get them cheaper here. Three for 60 cents. Eventually, of course, the 32 paintings were recognized as the breakthrough work of a new genre, pop art. Warhol and Campbell's became linked in the public mind. The company even gave Warhol soup can labels to use as invites for another exhibit in 1965. But that came later. At that first gallery show, Warhol only sold six of the paintings, one of them to actor and artist Dennis Hopper. He paid a hundred bucks. In 2006, a Warhol soup can sold for over $11 million.
0: So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm here at Chef Jose Andreas's restaurant Bazaar in the SLS Hotel Beverly Hills. That's right down the street from where Warhol soup cans were first displayed. Rob Floyd is lead bartender here. Rob, what cocktail did this inspire you to make?
6: I immediately got in touch with Jose
0: Andres, and um, we decided to
6: use uh, really fresh tomato water. Kind of like Campbell's tomato soup. Exactly, exactly. Did you put Coke in there with the tomato? I didn't. I didn't. I wanted to. I, but I thought it was really interesting that he said, either Prince or Pauper, it tastes the same. He said that about Coke? That's a quote from Warhol. If you're a billionaire or if you're the guy off the street, it tastes the same. He loved that consistency.
0: Well, we, you've got enough stuff here to believe that this is going to be a billionaire-style drink. <laughs> here, You've got, like, a lot of carafes of different juices. How is this thing made?
6: Basically, just a take on a Warhol Bloody Mary. So here we use gin. It can be made with vodka, half ounce of lime, half ounce of lemon celery water. I think he'd appreciate the mix of different colors. That's for certain. (laughs) Uh, Then we're going to go to the tomato juice. Dash of Worcestershire, dash of uh, Tabasco, and a dollop of horseradish. Fill it up with ice, and we're going to shake it.
0: All right. And uh, since this is based on avant-garde art, you have an avant-garde garnish, I understand? Right. It's called creating an air, a bubble bath over the top of a
6: cocktail. It's based on sucrose, which you can get at any store, especially health food stores. Tomato water and horseradish whipped with a hand blender. All
0: right, so that goes on top, and you're stirring the whole drink with a celery stick, which is sort of like a paintbrush, maybe, the leafy part. All right, here we go. Oh, man, extremely light. It's like sipping a cloud that's beautiful now here's the thing though to keep with the theme can you replicate that 32 times for me right now
6: absolutely we'll see if we can
0: finish all 32 together uh yeah so brendan two things yeah that drink is meant to be served in a campbell soup can perfect and after we taped i ate at bazaar where they serve Uh amazing fried croquettes in a clear rubber sneaker that's true
2: (laughs) So if you order them together, you look like a bad clown or something.
0: Or or a pop art painting. Or a pop art painting. Uh, Folks, you will find a photo of that cocktail, which is art unto itself, plus all our drink recipes at
2: dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
0: Today our guest is actress Anna Gunn from the acclaimed TV series Breaking Bad. Its season premiere is this weekend... In it, she plays half of one of the least healthy fictional couples ever. Here she is to list some others.
3: Hi, I'm Anna Gunn, and I play Skylar White on Breaking Bad, the wife of Walter White, who uh, starts out as a very nice chemistry teacher, and then he decides to become a crystal meth cooker. A little bit of a rough relationship. They do not share many happy moments So I've come with a little list, a little guest list of who would rival the whites in dysfunction. The first thing that actually came to mind was the movie The Ice Storm, because everyone's dysfunctional in that movie. The Ice Storm is about a bunch of families in the 70s living in a suburb and it's Christmas time and and it should be a happy time celebration and there is just this aching sense of ennui, this boredom. Kevin Klein is having an affair with Sigourney Weaver, I believe. Joan Allen is plays Kevin Klein's wife, and there's just this one scene I remember where she's doing dishes and she knows what's been going on and keeps it inside but you can feel it like about to boil over in her.
1: Don't start. You,
2: you, do you think I
7: I have no idea.
2: what's on your mind, I mean... It wouldn't
7: make for a pleasant evening if that's what you're after. I don't want to talk about
3: it. I watched it a couple of times when I started doing Breaking Bad. That kind of marriage made me think so much of the Whites. Both of them are people, it seems to me, who've had lots of dreams deferred and lots of disappointments, but they pretend things are okay, and we just go about our daily business, and if we don't say anything about it, maybe it won't even really be there. Number two on my list would be the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining, with Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, Oh my gosh, it's about a mother and father and their little boy who go to be caretakers of this big resort. The resort is closed in the wintertime and then it, it really starts to make Jack Nicholson truly crazy.
4: Get a lot written today?
0: Yes.
2: Hey. Weather forecast said it's going to snow tonight.
6: <clears throat> what do you want me to do about it? Oh,
3: come on, honey. Don't be so grouchy. She keeps trying to smile and say, oh, well, let's have some dinner, and okay, and and she just is in denial until he's coming at her with the, you know, what would what he come at her with? An axe, that's what it was. <laughs>
8: Here's
3: Johnny! (laughs) Until he starts coming at her with the axe, I think she's like, maybe she can deal with it. And then perhaps after that, she thinks, "Mm, no, I don't know that I can come back from that. It's time for a divorce at that point, yes. My third pick is from one of my favorite plays, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? by the wonderful Edward Albee. The characters of George and Martha are... (laughs) They bring dysfunction to an entirely new level, I think. The plot really is just they invite a couple who've just moved to town over for a drink, a little getting-to-know-you party, and all hell breaks loose. Lots of buried truths are exposed and hurled about, like, weaponry. Stop it,
4: Martha. Like hell I will. You see, George didn't have much push. He wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was sort of a flock. A great big fat Stop stopping mother I hope that was an empty bottle George you can't afford to waste good liquor
3: that's that's probably the point where the, the young couple might want to look at their watches and say you know what we have got to be up kind of early in the morning so nice to see you thank you very much but they don't they stay. I think we like to watch things like this because we all know that nobody can be more cruel to you than the person who knows and loves you best because they've got everything on you. To watch people going through that I think is, it's fascinating.
2: The guest list from actress Anna Gunn from the celebrated TV series Breaking Bad, it launches its final season this week.
0: And Brendan, speaking of The Shining and dysfunctional relationships, here's an example. Besides ours. Yeah, apparently Stanley Kubrick would not sympathize with any of Shelley Duvall's problems while they were on the set, and he told the rest of the crew to do the same. I guess so she could feel the character's isolation. That is so cruel. I mean, it worked. It's on the
2: screen. What did he do to make Jack Nicholson act crazy?
0: Nothing, right? (laughs) Yeah, It just sort of happened. (laughs) Folks, we are going to take a short break. Coming up, best-selling author Cheryl Strayed tells us three words she doesn't want to hear.
7: I'm a hugger.
2: When the dinner party returns.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, author Karen Thompson-Walker reads from her new novel, The Age of Miracles, and later star chef Marcus Samuelson reminisces about his start in the restaurant business.
1: When I get a plate thrown at me, or hot scallop seared into my face. Ah, the good old days. Yeah. But first, it's time for our
2: etiquette segment.
0: Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is Cheryl Strayed. She wrote the memoir, Wild, about hiking the 1,100-mile Pacific Crest Trail in the wake of her mother's death. It's currently the number one New York Times nonfiction bestseller. More germane to our purposes today, though, she also writes the popular and, I think, very moving advice column, Dear Sugar, for the website therumpus.net. Those columns have just been collected as a book called Tiny Beautiful Things, and Cheryl, welcome.
7: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, Your advice pieces are kind of like none that I can think of. They're half- very thoughtful, literate advice-giving, and half-personal essay. They're beautifully written, but how did you know that you'd be good at the advice-giving part?
2: Are you, you someone know, that gives advice to your friends?
7: <laughs> I do think that many of my friends would, would tell you I'm sort of a know-it-all. but <laughs> I, I, <and> I <laughs> A loving know-it-all. But um, I, the writer Steve Almond, is the person who asked me to do it. He'd been writing the column. He just wasn't that interested in it. And he'd read an essay I wrote called The Love of My Life. And as he tells it, he just saw something that he thought that I would be good at giving advice. Mm. I didn't know that he was correct in that. I still don't know, frankly. <laughs> but I, I just said, okay, sounds good.
0: It is interesting. And in one of the early columns in this book, you talk about time you spent counseling troubled teenage girls. Your readers really seem to have embraced your advice. But you have said that you don't plan on doing this forever and that you couldn't do it forever. Why not? In fact, it seems like you could have a, like a second career as
2: a therapist. Because <laughs> she has a New York Times bestseller, Rico. That's why. <laughs> Well.
7: <laughs> oh no, no. You mean will I ever become a therapist? No, yeah. I can't see that. Though it's interesting because Sugar has a lot of fans who are therapists. I I, I get a lot of emails from. Really? Yeah, and they say if you ever want to hang out a shingle,
2: you could. <laughs> wow. <laughs> do you think they just crib from you? And well, like... they do.
7: They do. Oh. They they tell me that they have read my columns out loud to their clients at times. But have they
2: told Um, their clients that you wrote them instead of them? Yeah. Do you get
0: royalties when they do that?
7: Oh, darn. See, I never think about how to stand up for myself in that way. But, you know, it's interesting. I met a therapist last week. She came to one of my readings, and she said, you know, you get to do the work that we all went into psychotherapy to do, but that we can't truly do. And she said that, that I just had a lot more freedom. You know, they're, they're bound by all these rules of confidentiality and privacy. Boring. And, yeah. You know, and yeah. so they can't, you know, most most therapists don't tell their clients, you know, the story of their divorce.
0: Yeah, they shouldn't get involved, right?
7: Right. Any number of the things that I do as sugar. I'd just be a total blabbermouth about my own life.
2: <laughs> People would be like, shut
0: up. Who
7: wants that? You'd be thinking, "You're I'm paying for this? Yes. Your patient
2: <laughs> would be giving you a prescription. That's right. <laughs> all right, well, before you stop doing this, maybe we can have you give advice to our audience who's asked some questions yes so here's a question it comes from heartbroken out west after you break up with a significant other who gets custody of the dance clubs you both like to go to
7: yes well there are a lot of people heartbroken out west but not all of them (laughs) want custody of a dance club Um, (laughs) you'd be surprised i know i know the thing that delights me the most about this question is that dance clubs are plural you know, that there's not just one <laughs> yeah, I dance know. club.
2: I love this couple. This
7: is a fun couple. And I think if there's more than one, one dance club in your life, you can probably divvy them up. Yeah, and so yeah. my advice is to list all the dance clubs, you know, sort of separate, <laughs> just like the way you'd separate, you know, your CD collection. Yeah. You know, not that people have CDs anymore, but back when I got divorced, right. <laughs> you know, back in the Stone Ages, that's what we did. Divvy up those dance clubs. And maybe with time, as people heal, they can, can start frequenting the same dance clubs and sure. have a little dance together.
0: Do you have any method for divvying up the dance clubs? I mean, what if
2: what if some? She of said them are you just... make a list and you just. But
7: yeah, you're right. I mean, maybe some of them. It's like you know, they one has like a really great disco ball. Do, do dance clubs. What do they even have now? I don't. I don't know. When's the last time you guys were in a dance club? Mm-hmm.
2: Actually, I just came back from Europe, and so I. You know how <laughs> when you're in Europe, you end up in dance clubs. It's just uh. one big dance club over <laughs> there.
7: It happens to me all the time. That's you right. wake up, you're next to a naked Norwegian. All right uh, next
2: question.
0: Yes. Here's number two from Mark uh, in East San Francisco Bay. My sister, a businesswoman, writes Mark, berated me for shaking a woman's hand incorrectly. The hand was offered palm down, so I matched the gesture. My sister said I should have taken the woman's hand the same way as a gentleman's handshake. Which way is correct?
7: Well, this one, this is a deep question because it really goes to the roots of, you know, what are we doing when we offer someone our hand? And it's a, it's a way of, of greeting, of saying, you know, here we're, we're, we come in peace and, and friendship. And I know exactly this sort of—it is sort of a wimpy handshake, this, this terrible thing that, yeah. that some women do. I don't know what do.
2: this is. What is palm down? It's no, sort of like you the know demure— this,
7: Yes. And, and, you know, I think it's a generational thing. A lot of women over the age of, I'm just going to say, maybe 65? Of a
2: different generation, yeah. They
7: were taught that it's unladylike to shake a hand sort of mm. man styled. And yeah. so what they do is it's it's that palm down as if the man is going to kiss the top of the woman's hand. Yes. That's okay? what I do. <laughs> you go down on your knee and kiss her hand. Of That's, course. Yes. If they're Norwegian. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I think Mark did the right thing. I think his sister is wrong because she would have been embarrassed if he yeah. adjusted her handshake.
0: Yeah, it seems way more impolite to adjust a woman's hand to shake it the way you think it ought to be shaken. You know the thing <laughs> you know? I
7: hate above all? What? Is the you know I live in Portland, Oregon, and so I get a lot of this perfect stranger. You you are introduced, and he says in a kind of sweet whiny voice, "I'm a hugger," and then pretty soon you're wrapped. <laughs> you're wrapped oh, in an embrace. God. Oh yeah. no! I'm a hugger. Or just be a hugger.
0: Don't tell people yeah. you're a hugger. Yeah. I also like how that that sort of makes it okay. I'm a murderer. I'm a yeah. hugger.
2: <laughs> it's just how it is. You're like I'm out of here. <laughs> You don't get any custody of the dance clubs. Okay, um, (laughs) next question. This is more serious from Anna K. in Melbourne, Australia. If you see someone crying in a public place, uh, for example, waiting for a train or in a restaurant washroom, is it more polite to pretend you haven't noticed or to ask them if they're okay?
7: I think it's more polite to ask them if they're okay, but I think that there's something bigger at stake here, and that Mm. has nothing to do with being polite or not polite. And that is... Mm. Really, you know, making that human connection with someone in their moment of need, I think it's a really powerful and kind thing to do. I've been, a, I've had a couple of experiences in my life where I was publicly crying, embarrassed about it like most people are when they're crying yeah. in public. And, you know, your main feeling in that moment is, you know, please don't look at me. Please don't acknowledge me. But I think also uh, there's something about somebody daring to break through that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time, I was crying. I was a teenager, actually, and I and I was crying publicly. And this man just came up and knelt down beside me. I was sitting in a chair, and he just said very quietly to me, "It's going to be okay." And then he got up and walked away. And that was incredible. I never forgot that moment. It was, was going <laughs> Yeah, it was very beautiful. Rico,
2: it's not going to be okay if you cry.
7: <laughs> it's not going to be okay. So I think I think that you should really take that chance. I mean, you don't have to offer you know a counseling session. Just do you need anything? Usually, the person will say no, but thank you. And there's just that little opening, and that person knows that, that you're concerned, that you're not indifferent.
0: Well, someone who is definitely not indifferent to strangers' problems is Cheryl Strade, AKA advice columnist Dear Sugar. Cheryl, thanks so much for telling our listeners how to behave.
7: Oh, thank you. It was really fun. <laughs>
2: Time to eavesdrop. Karen Thompson Walker used to edit other people's books at Simon and Schuster. Then, mornings before work and on the subway, she wrote her own. Her debut novel just came out. Vanity Fair calls it the summer book. Today, we overhear her read an excerpt.
9: Hi, my name is Karen Thompson Walker. Um, My book is called The Age of Miracles. The narrator is a woman named Julia who's looking back on a year in her childhood when this really extraordinary thing happened. And what happened is the rotation of the earth began to slow down. And I'm gonna read chapter one. We didn't notice right away. We couldn't feel it. We did not sense at first the extra time bulging from the smooth edge of each day like a tumor blooming beneath skin. We were distracted back then by weather and war. We had no interest in the turning of the earth. Bombs continued to explode on the streets of distant countries. Hurricanes came and went. Summer ended. A new school year began. The clocks ticked as usual. Seconds beaded into minutes. Minutes grew into hours. And there was nothing to suggest that those hours, too, were not still pooling into days, each the same fixed length known to every human being. there were those who would later claim to have recognized the disaster before the rest of us did. These were the night workers, the graveyard shifters, the stalkers of shelves and the loaders of ships, the drivers of big rig trucks. Or else they were the bearers of different burdens, the sleepless and the troubled and the sick. These people were accustomed to waiting out the night. Through bloodshot eyes, a few did detect a certain persistence of darkness on the mornings leading up to the news but each mistook it for the private misperception of a lonely, rattled mind. On the 6th of October, the experts went public. This, of course, is the day we all remember. There'd been a change, they said, a slowing, and that's what we called it from then on, the slowing. We have no way of knowing if this trend will continue, said a shy, bearded scientist at a hastily arranged press conference, now infamous. He cleared his throat and swallowed cameras flashed in his eyes. Then came the moment, replayed so often afterward, that the particular cadences of that scientist's speech, the dips and the pauses and that slight Midwestern slant, would be forever married to the news itself. He went on, but we suspect that it will continue. Our days had grown by 56 minutes in the night. At the beginning, people stood on street corners and shouted about the end of the world. Counselors came to talk to us at school. I remember watching Mr. Valencia next door fill up his garage with stacks of canned food and bottled water, as if preparing, it now seems to me, for a disaster much more minor. The grocery stores were soon empty. The shelves sucked clean like chicken bones. The freeways clogged immediately. People heard the news, and they wanted to move. Families piled into minivans and crossed state lines. They scurried in every direction, like small animals caught suddenly under a light. But of course, there was nowhere on Earth to go.
0: Author Karen Thompson-Walker, to see if the Earth ever regains its speed, read her debut novel, The Age of Miracles. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media.
2: And now, it's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something that we don't, so if the topic comes up in conversation, we can hold our own. Today, the topic is folk singer Woody Guthrie. He would have turned 100 this Saturday, uh, and people will be celebrating his centennial worldwide. Our teacher is award-winning Woody Guthrie biographer Ed Cray. His book about Guthrie, Ramblin' Man, was just released in paperback. Ed, thanks for joining us. My
8: pleasure, Brendan.
2: I wanted to start by talking about This Land is Your Land, which is a Woody Guthrie song that people are familiar with, even if they didn't know that Woody Guthrie wrote it. Uh, It's a song sung by schoolchildren across America. Most people think of it as a patriotic tune that celebrates America. But that wasn't really the spirit in which Woody wrote it. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why the song was written?
8: It was written in reaction to Irving Berlin's song, God Bless America, which was a big hit at the time with Kate Smith singing it. And Woody was very upset with the song because, first of all, it's saccharine and cloying at best. (laughs) And second of all, it didn't deal with the people Woody knew, the migrant workers who were starving, literally, who slept in ditches or under bridges. Woody used to brag he had a a family member under every bridge in California. He wrote it in reaction to the uh, Irving Berlin song and then edited it. And what he did, and this is really important to understanding, Woody, he cut out the sour verses uh, to the song. And what we have now are the four stanzas that survive uh, Woody's editing.
2: Can you recite from memory one of the stanzas he's cut out?
8: Let's see. In the uh, shadow of the steeple, I saw my people. They stood there hungry. God uh, didn't bless America for them. Right. Uh, that's a very crude uh, approximation. <laughs> but the, you get the notion.
2: What about his personality made him remove that part?
8: Let me put it this way. To understand Woody and his music and his life, there are three characteristics, I believe, that leap out. Okay. One is Woody's humor. Even in his darkest songs, for example, Pretty Boy Floyd, he wrote, Some will rob you with a six-gun and some with a fountain pen. Even when he was being pointedly critical of some aspect of, of uh, life, there was humor in it. Yeah. The second thing, and he learned this, I believe, from his father, he was incredibly optimistic. And the proof of it was he once wrote an aphorism that all man is, is a hoping machine. That's and, right. I, you know, mere writers like me can only be in awe of a phrase like that, <laughs> a hoping machine. Yeah. And the third part, third characteristic that I think comes out in Woody's music is his intense patriotism. In, in May 1940, he wrote a song called Pastures of Plenty. Now, May 1940, the, the uh, Wehrmacht was uh, moving uh, across Europe. The the skies of London were ablaze with German bombers. And Woody wrote uh, these lines, This land I'll defend, if my life, if it be, for these pastures of plenty must always be free. I think that encapsulates Woody's intense patriotism.
2: And his relationship to freedom, which was a value that he held dear even in his personal life. But I want to get back to what you said about his optimism. You know, it's fascinating that that was a defining trait of his, Because he he had his fair share of struggles, one of which was with fire. Um, Can you talk about the role fire played in Guthrie's life?
8: Fire dogged Woody Guthrie. First of all, his beloved older sister, uh, who called uh, Woody Blockhead, (laughs) she died in a a kitchen fire. It was never established that her mother actually threw a lantern at her. But her mother did throw a lantern at Woody's father and scalded him from groin to neck. He survived, but the mother was sent off to the state asylum as a result of that. Summarily, Woody never even had a chance to say goodbye to her. And then fire again destroyed a a portion of Woody Guthrie's uh, life when his oldest child By his second wife, Marjorie, Kathy was killed in a house fire. Finally, Woody couldn't play guitar because he burned himself by throwing gasoline on a fire when he was uh, traveling with his third wife. That rendered him unfit to hold a guitar or play one.
2: You mentioned his third wife there, and I think it's worth pointing out that Woody followed his passions, as it were. You know, despite his good humor and love for his fellow man, he could be quite cavalier in his treatment of people close to him. Oh, yeah.
8: yeah, yeah. Woody could go out for a pack of cigarettes and uh, disappear for two weeks. (laughs) Or he would book events and never show up. Uh, He would borrow guitars without any thought of ever returning them. So he was not, in that sense, a trustworthy person. But he certainly was a great entertainer.
2: Well, Ed Cray, thanks so much for teaching us a little bit about Woody Guthrie.
8: Thank you very much for having me, Brendan.
1: This land is your land, and this land is my land. From the California to the New York island, and the Redwood Forest.
2: Ed Cray's book is called Ramblin' Man, The Life and Times of Woody Guthrie, and the paperback version hits stores this week. And Brendan, true fact, uh, Joe Strummer of the punk band The Clash, uh-huh. Was
0: such a huge Guthrie fan, he called himself Woody for many years.
2: Really? That is true. Woody Strummer. <laughs> yeah. It's not really punk rock, is it? It's more
0: bluegrass. Louisville Calling. Uh, all right, folks, we're going to take a break. But coming up, we have got a new song from The Dirty Projectors. We speak to acclaimed chef Marcus Samuelson. And best selling author Chris Cleave tells us the best part about researching his new novel.
10: I really enjoyed
2: um, beating people. And yet, he's a very nice gentleman. Yeah. here the proof when The Dinner Party continues.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from New York's smart art pop band, The Dirty Projectors. Rhymes. And author Chris Cleve tells us about the most widespread addiction among athletes. Amazingly, it is
0: neither steroids nor cliches. Hmm. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food.
2: So, Rico, Marcus Samuelson is one of the most popular chefs in the country. Yep. He won the TV show Top Chef Masters in 2010. He won the James Beard Award. He cooked
0: the first state dinner of the Obama administration.
2: That's right. Minor he's a, accomplishment. He's a big deal is what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Well, he just published a memoir called Yes, Chef. And in it, he talks about being born in Ethiopia, his adoption by a Swedish family. Wow. But what's most interesting in the book... Is the window it provides into how chefs are trained in Europe? Yes, it's a super intense world. Uh, when I spoke with him this week, the first thing I asked him was if I should call him a chef.
1: Well, uh, you could call me Marcus. You know uh, <laughs>
2: that 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 would work. Okay, or a chef. The reason I asked is because in your book you discuss your training at great length, and one thing that stands out is the rigid hierarchical structure of the professional kitchen. You know, it's almost like a military atmosphere. And, for example, it becomes ingrained in all young cooks to simply say, yes, chef, to anything the head chef says. And I wonder, why does there have to be this structure? I mean, is it necessary for it to be so rigid?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I think chefs are, it's completely, it's a sensitive craft. When you are cutting foods, and it's sensual and sensitivity, and it's a lot of emotions to it. Mm -hmm. And to do that, When you have hot oil and knives and a grill, you truly need some structure. Because there are some dangerous aspects, which I talk a lot about in Yes Chefs in in cooking as well. And it's sort of in that mix match between those two worlds. That's where this brigade came up and this hierarchy came up of you you just say Yes Chef to Chef. Because Mm -hmm. he or she has to be crystal clear to the staff what they mean. You know, yes, it's very liberal in many ways. It's a creative process. But uh, in the kitchen, it's pretty much a dictatorship.
2: So you went to culinary school in Sweden, uh, and then you trained at that fine hotel in Switzerland. You also trained at some other places. Eventually, you worked at a restaurant in France that had Michelin stars and all these top-notch places. And what I found fascinating was that you were paid almost nothing for any of these gigs for years and years. You know, sometimes you only made $200 a week. Sometimes you didn't earn anything. Why is that the case in the restaurant world, and how is that acceptable? Well, it's
1: about the hidden paycheck. What's the hidden paycheck? The hidden paycheck is everything you learn, just like everything. I learned everything in life. Those kitchens were my Harvard. Those kitchen was my masters. So if I flip that, I have to say I came out with very low debt. It was cheaper than 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 an American Ivy League school.
2: Another fascinating party tradition is called staging. This is kind of an odd part of what it means to be a chef. Can you explain what staging is to people who don't know? Well
1: it comes from it comes really from stage and in the French word and it's really about doing internships, being allowed into other chefs and other restaurants environment and You get be given that incredible window into learning, learning, learning.
2: Basically, uh, one restaurant will have a great chef, and then they will call another restaurant and say, "Hey, can you take my guy for a week or for a month?" Or for a year, just let him work for or a year and to work for free. Now, now now you're the executive chef of Red Rooster. Now you were, you know, executive chef at Aquavit. Is it hard when you're a boss to give up your best person for a month? I mean, that's got to be hard.
1: Well, you know, part of being a chef is that. You go from mentee to mentor, right? And when the team is giving you everything, 16 hours a day, when they're committed, understand the hidden paycheck, your job is then to put them to the next step and guide them to the next step in life. And that is, most of the time after two years, to let them go six, seven years later down the road, they're probably coming back if you did it right. Um, and the, our world still works like that. That's f- fascinating. And that's what you make clear in your
2: book. There's this honorable, yeah, there's this like honorable notion about how you treat people. And it's so
1: funny when you see TV shows about cooking, they see people screaming, but they don't focus also on the love and the mentorship. You know, there's one side. I'm like, the reasons why you can go hard on somebody is because it's total trust, right? It's total trust when I made a mistake and I, and I got a plate thrown at me or when I got a scallop hot scallop like seared into my face, <laughs> you know it sounds as crazy as that I sound I, I knew I made a mistake, you know it's a crazy, crazy thought, but it is <laughs> yeah. Mind you, I never thought that was done to me. With any other reason that I screwed up that day. Yeah, there was no. Malice. It wasn't like, oh, they do that because I'm black, or they do that because yeah. I'm the youngest. No, no, no. I screwed up. Own it. Yeah. And then w- there will be less scallops in my face. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, well, it's interesting. So you, so you mentioned, you know, you mentioned that you're black, which maybe some people in our radio audience do not know, um, because it's radio. Um And in your book, you talk a little bit about race. Yes. You know, it's a, a little bit. Theme. Yeah, I think it's... All a... right, you, talk, you talk a lot about race. Yeah. When, when you discuss kind of what it means to be a black chef in America, you talk about how there still aren't a lot of black top chefs. In fact, you say that there are more black men and women who are partners at law firms yeah. than black men and women who are executive chefs. And you have some interesting ideas about why this is. Can you kind of share them with us?
1: If you've always been the serving tribe without recognition about it, right? It has a different stigma. You know, I didn't work... To put you through college in order for you to go back and do what my grandmother did, and that stigma is that that's, black people have been the servant tribe in our in, in this country. So it, they wanted to. We then wanted to do other things. We wanted to be lawyers, doctors, um, academia, and then there was also some. You know, I think a lot of immigrants had easier time to get a loan from the banks than African Americans, and I I don't think. In the history in a country, any other country has set it up easier for immigrants to get a bank loan than its own people.
2: Well, we've been discussing your training and your thoughts on race. And although those things make up a good part of the book, the center of the story is your relationship to food. You are an adventurous eater. All throughout the book, you are eating snacks in Chinatown, learning how to cook in Ethiopia. I wonder, what are you eating these days that makes you happy?
1: Oh, yo, I I just came back from K-town two days ago. Koreatown, okay. Yeah, I was, like, fascinated by this mall. And, and the food in the mall is fantastic. It's everyday food. And I had, like, these wonderful, it's almost like snacks, like small sushi rolls with vegetables and a little bit of egg inside. And it was absolutely delicious. I just loved it, and it's like, yes, chef. <laughs> And Rico, these
2: days you can find Marcus at Red Rooster, which is a restaurant he opened in his adopted neighborhood of Harlem. All
0: right, are there flying scallops on the menu?
2: <laughs> there are not flying scallops. That's too bad. But you, but you will find a lot of Scandinavian dishes and Southern cooking.
0: So it's, yeah. a, it's like Swedish soul food.
2: Dude, absolutely, it's like deep-fried apple <laughs> with pickles. <laughs>
0: Our guest of honor this week is British author Chris Cleave. His novel Little Bee was a major bestseller for quite a long while. Two million copies, I think, sold, something like that. Yeah, I think so. His new novel is called Gold. And it's about Olympic-level gold-medal-winning cyclists who are also dealing with a daughter who has leukemia. And, Chris,
10: welcome. Hey, thank you very much for having me on your show.
0: Uh, first of all, nice timing for your book, The <laughs> London Olympics Coming Up. But uh, I wonder if you could read a paragraph from the opening of the book. I think it really gives an idea of what it's like to compete in the Olympics. One of the cyclists named Zoe is in the locker room waiting to race in the Olympics. And uh, this is on page three. It starts the worst part.
10: Sure. The worst part? was that she was shivering uncontrollably, despite the heat. It was humiliating and she couldn't make it stop. She was already suited and warmed up. She'd given a urine sample and 8 cc's of blood that must have been mostly adrenaline. She'd recorded a short, nervy piece to camera for her sponsors and signed the official race entry forms and pinned her race number to the back of her skin suit. And then she'd removed it and pinned it back on again, the right way up. (laughs) There was nothing left now to occupy these terrible minutes of waiting.
0: It is that is so evocative to me that whole passage. You also describe the kind of frightening sound of this huge stadium of people chanting her name. What kind of research did you have to do to to be able to capture that kind of visceral feeling?
10: Yeah, I did uh, two things. I spoke with athletes, um cyclists and runners for the most part. And the second thing I did was put myself through athletic training. And this is one of the things that the interviews with athletes showed me. One of the things they said is if you want to know what it feels like to race, you have to go out there and do it. (laughs) What did it... What did it feel like? At first, very sore. <laughs> I mean, In common with a lot of novelists, I think, you know, we're not the most athletic people no. at base. <laughs> uh, I hope I'm not impugning my, my fellow writers. No, Hemingway maybe had some brawn. Hemingway, look at his physique. I'd like to have seen him in a velodrome. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, um, that's true. Did you? I mean, did you actually get to the point where you were, you know, like competitive? Oh, yeah. I mean, I trained really, really hard and w- was quite surprised to find that I really enjoyed um, beating people. <laughs> this is <laughs> not something that I usually get in my line of work. No. You know, writing's one of those things. No one has to fail in order for your work to be good. Mm. But um, athletics, someone else has to be beaten. That was new territory for me. And I was very surprised to find that beast lurking inside me crying out for for fresh blood it was it's a terrifying thing and there's no there's no end to it i think that's why i became especially fascinated with the characters of people for whom that becomes their drug you know that they get really addicted to competition they never really stop competing mm. you know when the athletes cross the finish line well they're still psyching each other out and they're still <sighs> Projecting strength and they're still undermining their opponent's weakness all the way until the next start line You know it never stops such an addictive lifestyle, but then in the book you also juxtapose that against the sacrifices that they're making
0: for this girl who has Leukemia you let me say you you've said you're always looking for kind of the biggest story you can find to illustrate your favorite theme Which is quote that life is good and people are mostly kind to each other I hope that this doesn't seem naive, but why, why is that idea so important to you to get that across? Like, so much literary um, fiction
10: is about the opposite. It's about the darkness of life. Well, I, I've I have been an angry and a cynical novelist in the <laughs> past. <laughs> I think my, my first novel, Incendiary, was, was a furious novel. Mm. Uh, very angry with a lot of things, including but not limited to myself. And what you realize as a storyteller, and especially, you know, I think a storyteller like me, whose stuff is very research-based, and I go and I really try to find out about a secret world and report back. You learn that each novel leaves a trace in you, you know, whether whether that's an ennobling trace or whether that's a scar. Uh. You, you have to live with that, and your readers are also touched by it, and I got to this point that. Just to point out the stuff that's very obviously flawed about the world we live in, I don't really need me anymore to point that out to myself. (laughs) And it's actually... (laughs) You've gotten the news for that.
0: Exactly, you know. But it's interesting, something you were saying earlier, like it it kind of changes you. I mean, did you
10: feel that you were becoming an angrier person from writing angry prose? I was becoming a sadder person and a smaller person. Yeah, it, it does leave a trace and... I've learned that it's quite important for me to be able to look at myself and say I I wasn't just against everything, but I was also for something. Let me. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show.
0: The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
10: (laughs) What should you not ask me? What are you kind of tired of being asked? Um... Why do you look so much taller in your author photo?: <laughs> <laughs> Is that like, true like, I get, I get that quite a lot. Um, people expect you to be people, like seven feet tall. mm mm-hmm. It's um you've also got to to know that my author photo is a head and shoulders photo. Yes. <laughs> it shows no torso or legs, so what people's perception of how tall I am uh, is based on I don't know what. I'm five foot seven. Every now and then, someone will, will actually be genuinely shocked and <laughs> say, so you're so much <laughs> taller in your photo. You've um, lied to me somehow. Actually, I don't mind it at all, but um, that is something that people do ask me. Well, here's this is kind of the flip side, our second question. Tell us something
0: we don't know, something that you haven't talked about in interviews, either about yourself or it could be actually about the world at large. Something that'll blow people's minds at a dinner party.
10: Something that people don't know yes. and will blow people's minds. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, check this out. The um, I, I was researching a lot of Olympic stories about rivalries okay. um, when I was researching gold. And one of the things that I was reading about was the story, which a lot of people will be familiar with, of um, uh, Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Of course, the two Olympic figure skaters. And Tonya Harding, of course, sort of like had someone break Kerrigan's legs, right? Th- that's right. Effectively, you know, by by a proxy, ordered a, a hit on Nancy Kerrigan, Amazing. on her rival, to have a But not many people know what Tonya Harding did next. She became a boxer. Yeah. Um, and she had uh, a medium successful boxing career, which apparently was characterized not so much by technical proficiency as extreme <laughs> aggression. <laughs> when, when that didn't work out for her, um, she actually drove a car across the Utah salt flats. And she is, I believe this is true, um, but, you know, it's worth checking. But at, but at one point, and probably still, she held the world land speed record for a gasoline-powered convertible vehicle. What? Um, Are you talking about? (laughs) True story. And then after that, um, she was involved in an increasingly complicated kind of soap operatic escalation of problems. That part we expected. what, What I love about that story is, you know, if I made Tonya Harding up, as a novelist, when people would announce my departure from <laughs> realism. <laughs> I, love, I love these characters that are just larger than life. I was going to say there's your next novel, but you've apparently written that off. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I was thinking if I did write that as a novel, um, with them skating on the ice rink, it would have to be called Rink of Madness. <laughs> and Brendan, I checked, it's true.
0: Tanya Harding holds the land speed record for what are called vintage gas coupe class cars. Wow. She got a 1931 Ford up to 81 miles an hour on the
2: Bonneville salt flats. That is fascinating. Happened in reality. Do you know if the car happened to have a uh, triple axle? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Now
0: I know why people break other people's legs. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we have got a clip of Chris Cleave reading the opening of his novel, Gold. It is only on our website,
2: dinnerpartydownload.org.
1: And
2: And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week on the show, Jimmy Dynamite Walker from the classic sitcom Good Times will be here to answer your etiquette questions. We'll also hear from the band Passion Pit and much more.
0: Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks also to Bill Lance, Brendan Willard, Peter Clowney, and Judy McAlpin. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties.
2: Earlier this week, arty pop band The Dirty Projectors released their latest album called Swing Low Magellan. Here's a clip of the first single. The song is called Gun Has No Trigger. Bon appétit
6: if you had looked you might have just seen them.
2: Thanks
0: for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, signing off from the Frank Stanton Studios, home of the public radio business show Marketplace.
6: Hey, stop using my microphone. And this studio
2: is a mess. Yes, yes chef. chef. Clean it up. Ow, my face. Kai Rizdal is so harsh. But he loves us.